We tried to sell it in March 2017. Donald Trump took office in January 2017. I had talked to my agent about it where I was like, you think Americans are going to want to buy anything to do with the rest of the world? But of course, the novel is about democracy and dictatorship in this kind of political crisis. She was like, oh, no, I think it's so topical. And that's really not what anyone else thought. Have you ever been told you should get a more sensible career? On this show, we speak with creators and artists in Asia who ignored that advice to find success in their creative field. We'll learn how they paved their own path, dealt with roadblocks and challenges, and gained hard-earned lessons on their way to building a unique and singular foolish career. I'm your host, Timmy Sitanko. Sunisa Manning was born and raised in Bangkok to a Thai mom and American dad. She studied journalism at Brown University and worked in the nonprofit sector, including a royal foundation that led her to living and working in rural Thailand. The experience planted the earliest seeds for her first novel years later. Sunisa wrote a good true Thai over six years, and by all signs had the promise of getting published in the U.S. But there were no takers. Looking for other options, she submitted it to the Epigram Books Fiction Prize a Singapore-based competition that had just opened up to Southeast Asian writers. This is how Sunisa wrote, published, and got the book into the hands of readers. Selling out the first print run, all while raising a family and teaching during the pandemic. We're also joined by Epigram's fiction editor, Jason Eric Lundberg, to help tell the story. I went back home for the winter holiday with my family, and a friend from college actually roped me into a rural development job in Thailand. This was for a royal foundation, which gets into the story of how I wrote the novel. So I worked with Thai people exclusively, which I'd never done. I went to an international school. Mm-hmm. So I also spent a lot of time in the countryside with Thai people who are both farmers, going back generations, or descended from kings. It's called the Mephalong Foundation. I spent a lot of time up in the north, and then they actually worked across Southeast Asia. So I was in Aceh, Indonesia quite a bit, a little bit in Burma. I did a lot of communication stuff, but I would say I did a lot of the communications bridge. As you'll know, coming from Asia, the style of communication, some of the assumptions, all of that is really different. And so it was a really good position for me to code switch back and forth as someone who's biracial. How did it plant a seed for the novel? I I didn't have that experience thinking, I'm going to write a novel about this, but I got to have an experience of a couple years that showed me aspects of Thailand that I hadn't really experienced before, both positions of immense privilege. And I worked with people whom I love dearly who thought a lot about what they owe the country because of their birthright, which one of my main characters, Det, thinks a lot about. It's an old-fashioned idea in English, noblesse obligé, but in a small country, I saw it happen. And then being outside the city, I really like Thailand much better outside of Bangkok myself. And I spent a lot of time with folks who didn't have much, who were generous with what they had. I was one of those people who probably couldn't have told you it was rice growing in the field for a long time. I I spent time with school teachers as well, rurally, and got to see a little bit more of the Thai public education system, which I didn't go to. So it was just eye-opening. I started writing creatively in 2008, living in Melbourne. I had a day job, as most writers do, in nonprofit, but I would spend my weekends writing and just sort of messing around. And a lot of my friends in Melbourne were artists, which I don't think is a coincidence. It's more viable to be an artist there. There are a lot more grants and supports. But finally, one friend, Paul, 
was over one day and I put my writing away and he's like, do you ever think about doing this? I mean, you're always reading and writing. And I was like, oh, what? So, I mean, for me, creative writing is not a practical pursuit and it just never really entered my head as something I could seriously do, even though I loved it. That's when I just started writing and um, applying to MFAs. And then I eventually moved back to the States in order to apply and take creative writing classes and get a little bit more background. I hadn't done fiction writing. I'd done playwriting, a lot of journalism, but it's an entirely new vocabulary, the craft of fiction. And why an MFA as a path? Because that's a question a lot of writers consider. I wanted a rigorous training system. And by the time I went into one, I felt like I was ready. Some things that I did think about but didn't really solve were that most MFAs in the U.S. are trained to teach you to write stories about white folks, cishet white folk. And since I'm from Thailand, I wasn't going to do that. And so after my MFA, I had a whole couple years of a shadow MFA, my own, where I was really learning how to tell stories and how much to translate and how much to explain and who I was centering. There are all these other questions when you're writing for anyone who's not Yeah, the dominant type. So you created your own shadow MFA? How did you do that? Maybe the rest of us can follow it. Oh, I mean, it's the way any of us are writers long term, right? We read Mm -hmm. things and we learn. I learned that there are all these writers like James Baldwin, for me, Leo Tolstoy, who write from a moral and ethical stance, which we're taught in an MFA to discard. But that really resonated with me. Uh, A lot of the writers, I'm looking at my bookshelf, that taught me a lot. Adrienne Rich, who's a poet, and Audre Lorde. In their essays, there's a lot of talk about who they center, who the audience is, their own educations. Simone de Beauvoir, I find to be a completely compelling writer. I just went back through, and these are not the writers you're taught in a master's degree, MFA. And actually, they're not who I was taught undergraduate either. Toni Morrison, though, is a big influence, and I was taught her a lot as an undergrad. When did you actually sit down and decide, okay, I'm going to attempt a first draft? All of my short stories in graduate school, my teachers would be like, that's a novel premise. And then I turn in another one, they'd be like, that's a novel premise. And I think my (laughs) final evaluation, they were like, she's good at coming up with novels. She should write novels. (laughs) I was like, oh, great. But, you know, we didn't really learn about novels, right? It's hard to work on that in an MFA, The, the arc of a novel is totally different than the moment of a story, which I'm bad at. And actually, I don't write short stories. I write essays. Those are my short form thing. So I had a link story collection, and I did a workshop that was a whole manuscript workshop with Antonia Nelson, who's a great short story writer. Basically, her comment was, these are great, but this one story about a radical in the jungle, you're just never going to land in 30 pages. She's like, man, that backstory alone. And so she's like, why don't you break it in two? so that we see two moments from the same world. And I was like, oh, great. So I did, but between the moment of friendship between Det and Chang and the moment near the massacre on 6th of October, a whole novel popped out because I was just trying to get from here to there, but I wrote chronologically. And so in the short story, you know better than to write so chronologically in detail, Mm. but that's where the novel just filled right in. A Good True Thai is a coming of age story featuring three young Thais who meet as first years at Shilalongkorn University. It's 1973, the start of an era marked by a violent pro-democracy movement sweeping the country. There's Det, a great-grandson of King Shilalongkorn, 
who grows up with privilege and has the connections to succeed in society. His best friend, Chang, is a smart student who grows up in the slums, puts himself through school by scholarship, and is on the receiving end of social inequity every day. And there's Lek, the eldest daughter of Chinese immigrants. The Chinese can only live in the outskirts of the city, and her parents expect her to succeed for the whole family. But Lek wants to write like a revolutionary and move to the countryside to continue the fight. Det and Chang both fall for her, and the three ride wave after emotional wave as they move from street protest to a communist camp in the countryside, grappling with identity, idealism, and love. There was a lot of research. It's set between 1973 to 1976. I did a ton of archival reading. But it's also, I had to process what I found in the archive. The period of history that my book covers is becoming way more well-known, but when I was writing, it wasn't. And around the massacre on 6th October, there's still a pretty big taboo. And so when I would ask friends or family or friends of friends about it, I got a lot of pushback. I got a lot of people being like, oh, nice girls like you, you don't have to bother your head about that. That doesn't affect your life. It felt like a secret history and I felt very alone going through it. And so there was, I would say, not just an emotional journey, but also a spiritual journey of my own coming of age, my own political awakening. I had to wrestle with my identity and my past and uh, everything I was learning about that. What was it in your identity or past that you had to reconcile? Well, um, Thailand is a very small country with the most unequal distribution of wealth in the world. That's a fact and an abstraction, but as someone born and raised there, some of what I was learning was starting to look around at my classmates growing up and my classmates at Brown whose names were the names that I was seeing of these families that had been granted monopolies in industries or whatever. I was starting to situate myself in the context, I guess, of my privilege. But while that sounds, again, like a normal coming of age, this is in the context of enormous wealth disparity. And the Thai king is the wealthiest sovereign in the world. We don't have oil wealth or mineral wealth. So yeah, without getting too much more into it, I had a lot to think about. How did you design the other parts of your life and career while you were writing? Because you were also working and then you got married and you had a baby. That's not easy. It was hard. <laughs> and it's something I think about a lot because I live in the States. And so this is still a country without much of a safety net. And we don't have any family living nearby. Childcare is astronomical. <laughs> so yeah, we're still in the weeds. I designed it through trial and error. I learned very quickly that if I didn't make writing the first thing in my life, it just wouldn't happen. And I used to work in nonprofit communication, which was a great, very inspiring in many ways day job, but there's a lot of writing in it. And I learned that for me, that actually depletes my writing resource. And in grad school, a couple different professors told me, you have a teacher's personality. Have you thought about teaching? And so I started a teacher training program. I'm the oldest of four, so that probably has something to do with it. Mm. And I found I loved it. There are a lot of things about teaching that are pretty hard, particularly in the pandemic, but at least in the States, it's really low paying and <laughs> sort of thankless, except for your students who know. But it is rather flexible. Apart from the time when I'm in front of my students, I could prep or mark 
in odd hours, which means that I could get up really early and write and then fit it in. So yeah, trial and error and the good graces of my partner. My husband took the baby a lot. And <laughs> I was going through major edits on the book with my agent right after I gave birth. In retrospect, I would wait. But <laughs> such is the force of my ambition that I really wanted to do it, really wanted to sell the book. So my husband would have the baby and I would like literally hold him and nurse him and sort of pass him over my head and <laughs> take him. Like, like a football or something. Like a football. <laughs> Luckily, he's a good natured baby. So he deserves a lot of credit too. But you know, I really wanted this thing. And I had always hoped that my book baby would come out before my baby baby. But <laughs> It didn't work out that way, which is okay. What was the six years? Was that just getting it from the idea to a first draft that was ready for editing? I'm counting the whole thing. So it was from breaking the stories in two. And then I got first draft, signed an agent, edited with her. We tried to sell it in March 2017. Donald Trump took office in January 2017. Did that matter? Did that affect the... The ability I think so. To sell. Yeah, I think so. I had talked to my agent about it where I was like, you think Americans are going to want to buy anything to do with the rest of the world? But of course, the novel's about democracy and dictatorship and this kind of political crisis. She was like, oh, no, I think it's so topical. And that's really not what anyone else thought. And then I went through major edits with her again. We tried to sell it again, I think in 2019. Okay. And then I submitted it to Epigram where it was accepted. And I went with through edits with Jason. So there's a lot of rounds. So the edits between 2017 and 2019, what were you trying to do? Broadly speaking, a lot more plot and tightening, trying to make it page turnery, which <laughs> I'm not sure my novel is suited to. A lot happens in it, but because I have three point of view characters, given that not many people know about this period in Thailand, it feels historical. You have to explain the mm. politics of the time, and then the sort of geopolitics of the region. There's just a lot to get on the board before you can lift off. My feeling on the book is once you understand all of that, it's pretty captivating. But it, I could never really figure out how to make that runway a little shorter. But I also didn't want to give up any of the three point of view characters because they really stake out different places in the story. And giving up one character, that became a point of, well, not contention, maybe contention is too strong a word, but that became a thing, right, in terms of whether it could sell in the States or not. Yeah, definitely guided my choice of agent. There were some agents who wanted different things. And then editors mostly just wanted Lek. So they said, this was all her book. We might take it. A lot of Americans didn't like debt, the highborn one. And I get it. He's highborn and sensitive. I think Americans have this idea that we're a land of equal opportunity <laughs> and that we don't have a Brahmin class, both of which are untrue. But Det, he's sort of an anti-hero in the beginning because he has so much privilege and here he is stewing in his sensitivities. I didn't feel that way. He'd also just lost his mother, which was significant and really sad for him. I think people just felt like his voice was distant from what they could understand. But of course, within the context of Thailand, if you don't have what the nobility is up to, you don't really capture the whole story. Mm. And so when the editor started telling you we'd buy it if it was just like, did you consider doing it or not at all? 
it was more like we might consider it. So, I, okay. you know, not to put it too strongly. <laughs> no, I didn't, which maybe is naive of me, but I felt very strongly that we needed all three characters. And I was really moved by War and Peace by Tolstoy, which has three big characters. And Pierre Bezukhov is sensitive and he's like this bumbling idiot in the beginning of the book. And you grow to love him dearly. And I wanted to trace that same arc. So no, not particularly, but it was a very hard time for me as an artist, as mm. you can imagine. And it must have been a very lonely time, just arguing with yourself in your head about all these things? Well, I was arguing with my agent, luckily. <laughs> and and peers. I was lucky enough to get some fellowships and artist residencies that brought me into contact with people who are emerging and serious young artists, women of color. They had their book sell in the States. They had these big publicity teams. It felt like I was just watching all the rocket ships around me take off. And they would be like, your book's good. And I'd be like, yeah. And it's <laughs> totally like, and... <laughs> So that was really hard, um, mm. not because I was competitive with them, actually, but because I stopped believing in the book's uh, integrity. Were you classified as a female author of color? It's so different within the States and without. I think I probably assumed I was going to be classified as a woman of color. And in some ways, apparently, <laughs> there's a lot of interest in Asian Americans and women of color in publishing. But what I've, I'm learning is that I'm being classified as a global writer, a Thai writer, and that is an entirely different thing. The U.S. didn't go to war in Thailand. It doesn't figure in the American imagination beyond maybe beaches and full moon mm. parties. And I definitely got a strong sense that the book didn't conform to any of those ideas, doesn't have any Americans or Westerners, actually. And so people were, yeah, I don't know why an American would read this book. And so they passed. For this interview, I also invited Jason Eric Lundberg, the fiction editor at Epigram Books and a fiction author himself. Jason is on the review panel for the Epigram Books Fiction Prize, an annual competition launched by the publisher in 2015 to encourage more novel submissions from Singaporean writers. They receive 60 submissions each year. 10 get on the long list, 4 to 6 get on the short list, and one book is chosen as that year's winner. Getting on the short list means Epigram will publish your novel. In 2020, they expanded this vision to include writers from Southeast Asia. And Sunisa's brother suggested she submit her manuscript. What made you and Epigram think that a good true tie would be part of that year's finalists? What stood out? For one thing, we, we have not gotten a lot of submissions from or about Thailand. That was one thing, is that we wanted to expand our scope. And then when I started reading, I was just blown away. I was so taken with the story and so taken with the writing and so beautifully written and about such compelling and interesting characters. Okay, this needs to be on the short list. We still had to discuss it. I can't arbitrarily to, you know, put things on the short list. We right. have to you know, talk about it in the company and we have to uh, convince my boss as well because all the shortlisted titles are published. So we need to discuss the merits of that. But in my heart, I was like, this really needs to be on the short list. When you say discuss the merits of publishing, that's both from a creative and literary perspective as well as a commercial perspective? Yes. One of the things that is very interesting to, to work as an editor at that company is that from the start, we've been a, a commercial publisher. We're trying to sell as many copies as we can. And so that was definitely one of the factors. We thought it's a gorgeous story. Do we think people will read this? And we did. 
we felt that Singaporeans, who are our primary audience, would get into. But then Sunisa had a lot of contacts in Thailand, and so, okay, we need to sell this there as well. And it's done quite well there. I wanted to ask you both about that, because the book sold out its first printing, which doesn't happen a lot, so congratulations. Yeah. To put that into context, how often does that happen? For fiction, not very much. Our children's still great titles do very well, and those typically will sell out their first print run. A lot of our nonfiction will too, but our fiction doesn't typically sell in those numbers that we would start reprinting right away. A Good True Time sold out in four months. This was kind of an amazing thing. We haven't really seen it that quickly since the first year of the Fiction Prize, and definitely not this fast in terms of the author doing their own publicity and marketing. We do have a marketing department. Not all the publishers in Singapore do, but at the same time, because we handle so many titles every year, their workload on each title is pretty thin. This has been the trend for, God, the last 20, 25 years, really, is that the, the author has to take on much more of the marketing and much more of the promoting. So what was your magic, Sunisa? <laughs> Hustle and luck. <laughs> I think maybe Epigram thinks I'm too involved sometimes, but I'm <laughs> very great. <laughs> I'm that person that's always emailing them. But I'm so enormously grateful that they opened the prize to Southeast Asians and that Edmund has the vision to really think we need more stories where we tell our own stories about Southeast Asia, because that's exactly the problem my book ran into. But it was also the problem my book was trying to solve. How many mm -hmm. books do you know, have you read from Thai people about Thailand? There are some really amazing ones in Thai, <laughs> but a lot of them are not translated. And honestly, some of the translations aren't well done. It's usually government-sponsored support for translation, for getting Thai works out. None of that infrastructure is built, and I feel like my novel was just falling straight into that hole. <laughs> and so Epigram, I see, is an enormous superhighway in that sense that really helped my book and other very deserving books out. And also, I'm not the type to sit back and my experience in American publishing had taught me that no one is going to advocate for your book the way that you are, unless it's Jason, who really <laughs> does advocate very well for my book. You know, there's a certain amount of ownership there. And so I tried to not be too neurotic and bother them. But when I asked them for their press list, and most of their press is in Singapore, a little bit in Malaysia, nothing was Thai. This is my home country. And so I sort of got to work. And I just reached out to everyone. No shame. Who knows anyone in the Bangkok Post? Okay. <laughs> and because there are some new media outlets I find very exciting, like Thai Inquirer, Mekong Review, mm -hmm. those are fairly new. They weren't around when I was growing up, but I follow yeah. them on Twitter and I respect their work. And I have always been in touch with human rights Twitter. And so I actually reached out to just my dream reviewers, people I didn't know, and was like, hey, I have a novel coming out. You want to read it? and write something about it. <laughs> and people said yes. Almost everyone who is either Thai or their field is Thailand said yes, which speaks to actually the dearth of Thai stories because mm. they were just excited. They were like, oh, wow, yeah. But of course, also once people learn that my book is about protests and you know the protests in Thailand have started up again, mm -hmm. that also contributed to sales and a lot of enthusiasm and press. It was kind of amazing that the release of the book coincided so closely with the, with the current protests going on in Thailand. Uh, it was very fortuitous for us. I mean, don't mess with fate. 
the day of that FCC team launch, as you saw mm-hmm. in the video, Jonathan Head, the BBC correspondent, arrived late and out of breath because he was running in from the protests, which had really kicked up again that day. And we actually had a lot more journalists who were meant to come to the event who stayed to report on the protests, but it was crazy. It still is kind of crazy timing. And that obviously wasn't timed, right? There wasn't any kind of marketing strategy behind it. No, there was, no. That, you couldn't have predicted that. Second. There was no way. <laughs> like, that's too hard. Cannot control that. I'm telling <laughs> yeah. you, do not mess with fate. And on that note, not to be too wooey, but I'd love to just call out the dedication of the book, which says, for everyone who stood up and everyone who made room for them. And I should have done it anyway. I wanted to dedicate this book to my Thai grandparents, Thai Chinese grandparents, oh. but... On the very last pass, I was like, my most sincere wish is actually that Thailand sees a little bit more change in terms of who is allowed to have opportunity in the kingdom. And so I put that dedication on it. And I feel like it has been very auspicious for the novel. So (laughs) I saw your FCC launch event. Was it an orange painting behind it? Yeah, it actually went from red to yellow or the other way around, but it was a gradient. That's a Murray Desner painting. He's a real, like, real beautiful painter. I'm Mm -hmm. fortunate enough that my mother-in-law owns an art gallery. She's an art entrepreneur. We were staying with my mother-in-law, and my father-in-law used to be in film and video, and so he lit me, like, professionally. (laughs) And my mother-in-law was like, what painting do you want behind you? It was a real family effort, actually. And it was very cool because for Thai people, red symbolizes one side of the p- political spectrum and yellow the other. Mm. I'm not sure about how much anymore, but yellow traditionally has been associated with Rama the Ninth, the current king's father. Mm. Yep. And so uh, I loved the fact that I got to launch in Asia in front of a backdrop that was all of that gradient. Um, because my book, it's sort of a radical book, but they assume that I feel one way about the king or whatever, but I wanted to sketch out all the points, so... Yeah, it was a good backdrop for that. Did you come across anyone who was hesitant to write about it exactly because it was so political? Yes. The Bangkok Post didn't cover it for a long time. And they didn't cover the protests for a long time. And then a non-Thai journalist did an interview with me for the life section. But it wasn't covered in the English language paper of record the way it could have been, right? about all of the political issues. And actually, funnily enough, Thailand Tatler, which is a very high society magazine, they covered all the politics. They just went for it. People surprise you. How many marketing events have you done by now? Oh, a lot. I had two launches, typical biracial child that I am. I had an American (laughs) one, which was a lot of friends and very personal. And then the Thai one, still a lot of friends and family, but much more outward facing, as you saw. Jonathan Head hosted it. Jasmine Chia, another journalist I really respect, but didn't know. I just reached out to her on Twitter and was like, love your work. Genuinely, I feel like you would really dig my novel. Would you read it? And then we had such a good interview that I was like, can we just run this again at my launch, please? Uh, Because what I'm looking for is really intelligent engagement and people who are willing to go there. And because some of what the book deals with is taboo, not everyone is. I really respect Epigram's marketing department, small and mighty. I feel like we are a really good team and they let me be extremely type A and I built a spreadsheet, but they worked in the spreadsheet and we would just hand things off. (laughs) Sunisa is a natural introvert. And like most creators, she had to figure out how to get into self-promotion mode. 
This goes back to having a clear purpose for writing the novel. I hate the idea of self-promotion and and it's so hard to put your work out for criticism. I'm doing air quotes here. So what really helped me was the very fact that honestly there's not enough out there about Thailand by Thai people. And I don't think of it as my book on a pedestal, <laughs> much that I love my book, but I think of it as really just kicking that door open. And some of what I'm saying, hopefully people won't have to say anymore. It's really embarrassing that these white furangs come and marry their young Thai wives and have barely lived in the country and they write these atrocious Orientalist tomes. Mm. It just drives me absolutely crazy. Now my book is next to those books in bookstores. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. <laughs> what helped was I thought of my book within a larger context, which you almost always can, depending on your ambitions. I'd love to see more Thai books get out there and generally more Southeast Asian books, right? Things that aren't crazy rich Asians, which is so fun, but again, kind of a palatable, Western-friendly version mm, of yeah, Singapore, which yeah. has some really complicated things to talk about. Well, and again, um, it's, it's centered on an American character. She's, she's Asian-American, but she is still an American character who is being introduced to a very narrow slice of Singapore's society. The second print run is out in copies may already be in bookstores as you listen to this. Does Sunisa have plans to flex her marketing muscle a bit more? I've had a lot of requests from London, actually. There are a lot of people all around the world who love Thailand. People have been like, huh, why isn't it in bookstores here in England? For several years, we had a London imprint, but because of the pandemic, we had to close it down at the very beginning of this year. Not to dampen your spirits at all, but it was actually supposed to uh, come out in London. Yeah. It was supposed to come out in London this year as part of our plans, but we unfortunately had to scrap it. That's okay. I mean, that means the English rights are still up for grabs, so mm -hmm. that's kind of exciting. And could you still do something online? I don't know. I don't have any plans right now. But one thing I wish I could have done and someday will do is see the book in bookstores in Thailand because <laughs> I haven't. And so my family sends me photos or other writers. Rob Yoon sent me a text and was like, hey, your book's a bestseller. And I was like, what? No way. Because <laughs> I'm totally not on the ground. Can't go home. But, you know, these things come in waves. Brown, my uh, alma mater sounds so wanky, but, you know, the school I went to, um, did a beautiful review of the book. And now I have a couple events at Brown coming up. You mentioned in the Thai Inquirer interview that you had two expectations for the novel. One was that there are a lot of books about Thailand written by foreign men explaining Thai culture, Thai beaches, Thai women. And so you want this to be one of those first books by a Thai person with no foreigners in it. And the second one was the interview happened while Hong Kong was still protesting and while Thailand is now still under a dictatorship. So you're hoping that people read the book to accompany their own process of political awakening. Are those expectations coming to pass? I am really interested in making sure the book gets translated into Thai, which is currently a work in progress, because I'd like it to reach more Thai people. But the protests, they have their own life and they're kind of going in their own speed. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people are learning things through the protest in a really big way. I think it's really important that I'm also a Thai woman that I'm publishing this. And certainly it's not the first book with no Westerners in it, but it might be the first one or one of the first written in English. That's where that's true. Was there anything else that you wanted to touch on about the novel or the process of writing it? I think one of your questions is, when was the manuscript ready? And for me, it was after Jason's edits, which were so great. <laughs> and honestly, the book 
it really tightened up. It had a new ending. I felt like it fell into its form and shape very beautifully. So I just wanted to say that they were amazing edits. Well, thank you very much. Yay. <laughs> I, I have some great stuff to work with. And is this the ideal editor-writer relationship that I'm watching right now? I mean, Jason's the only editor I've worked with, but it's going well, <laughs> if you ask me. I trust his edits a lot, which surely is the thing. And I appreciate that. That's, that's not the case with all the authors that I've worked with. There have been some that it's been more of a battle, that they are very much more precious about their writing. Just a simple thing like changing things to fit our house style. Getting some pushback from that is not always the easiest thing. But at the same time, I, I haven't had a, a contentious relationship with any of my authors, which I'm, I'm very thankful for, is that there's still a level of respect on both sides, even if there might be some arguing sometimes. I really do appreciate that Sunisa was so open to the editorial process and to changing things so that, in my view, as her editor, they would elevate the novel. It's not that I don't argue with people. Like, obviously, people have suggested cutting a point of view character, and I was like, nope. But I generally think the work can always be better. And so if I am sure that I'm not being precious when I have a kind of nope reaction, that's how I know there's like a, internal oh yeah like I can't do that because then it wouldn't be my book but if I can imagine doing it which the writer Daniel Torday told me if you can imagine it you should just do it actually so everything Jason said fell within the realm of oh I think that actually would make my book so much better and the way I've always looked at my job is I'm much more of a midwife to the book I'm trying to help it's still very much Sunisa's book and her name is on the cover and so it's something where I'm never trying to impose my own view it's always suggestions. These are things that I think from my years of experience in doing this would help. I, I do have to remind myself of this sometimes, that I'm there to help. I'm there in more of a service capability than anything else. So you're now officially a novelist with a physical book to show for it. And your career is a combination of the novel writing and the teaching. Is that a pretty good setup in general, just the ability to have a day job and be able to write? I mean, actually for me, I've learned the ideal is to teach and write. I kind of go a little nuts when I'm just writing, particularly, I think with novels, because they're so big. And to hold that in my head, it's very cerebral. I can float away. Teaching puts me in the world. It puts me in service of other people, which I think is really healthy, um, actually, for the ego. I, I really love teaching. So the struggle is always not to teach too much that I don't have any novel time. And I'm still trying to work out that balance. This was a really hard mm -hmm. year to teach, as you can imagine. Zoom is not ideal. Students are struggling. So I haven't actually been writing the next novel so much. I had an early sprint in the pandemic. And then the school year started. But, you know, that's the kind of year we've been dealt and I'm happy to actually support the students in any way I can. I think of it as midwifing, too. You're in service to someone else, and I think that's good for us. So we ask this of every person we interview. In a creative career like yours, would you choose passion over talent or vice versa? And why? Oh, wow. <laughs> Who wants to go first? <laughs> Take your time. I... I think this answer is annoying, but if passion means perseverance, I would choose that because 
talent doesn't get you that far. At least with novels. Again, it depends, mm. I think, on the form. But novels are a long form. They're years in the making, if they're good. And I think devotion, the ability to sit and stare at a wall, it doesn't sound so fun. But talent is just the first step. Talent is the thing that everybody starts with at varying degrees. So there may be people who are just wildly talented right from the beginning. But unfortunately, it seems to be that those people are a flash in the pan. They'll make a big splash when they first come out or they're first debuting their work, but can't really sustain that over a career. But it tends to be the ones who are butt in chair every day or as much as you can, slowly chipping away at it over time to make something that may be not blazingly creative right away, but it's something that you can work at and work at and that eventually will you know, become something that looks like it came out in a fever of creation. I hope this is a hopeful thing for people to hear. It should be, because honestly, revision <laughs> transforms the mediocre. Someone once told me that writing a novel is like bricks in a wall, and you have to make sure every single one is laid and it's solid. And that is kind of a boring metaphor, but it's true. Mm-hmm. Or I think about marathon running. You may be very good, and you may kind of genetically come from runners and all this stuff but eventually you will need to train and whether that's because of age or the distance of your run training and and mental stamina are really important but I also think what's so exciting for me about novel writing and writing fiction is that you get better usually as you get older if you keep on sitting there as a fairly type a person I had all these expectations about debuting really young and I don't know. It's been really cool to just be like, oh, but I could be writing really great novels in my 60s. And there are a lot of professions where you will have peaked, actually, by that age. And it actually goes against the ageist thing that you see a lot in the media, that you mm-hmm. have to have done everything by 30. Yeah, no. Like, the more you see of life, theoretically at least, the better. Thanks for listening to Foolish Careers. If you enjoyed this episode, there's more where that came from. Just subscribe to the Foolish Careers newsletter. You'll get a new story a week featuring a storyteller, artist, or creative entrepreneur in Asia who ignored the advice to get a more sensible career. So subscribe today at foolishcareers.asia. We look forward to hearing from you.